pull within me existed was to do great NOLA and was to kind of pursue this path. And so even though it kind of felt like it was against the grain from what I felt I was always raised to do, it just felt right. So you do it anyway. Be authentic. Go off the beaten path. Define what success looks like for you. That all sounds awesome sauce, doesn't it? But what does working and living on your own terms actually look like in practice? The Leading Rebels podcast is here to offer some answers. Every two weeks, you'll hear inspiring interviews with badass women walking the talk and my own actionable advice to help you find, own, and tell your story. I'm your host, Catherine Dell, a storyteller, founder, and book nerd that's passionate about amplifying women's voices. Now let's dive into today's episode so you can become a leading rebel in your life. Hey, the Rebels. On this episode of Rebel Moves, I'm super excited to be able to introduce to you Erica Lou Williams, who's a former Olympic trial swimmer and Silicon Valley techie-turned-food entrepreneur. I was lucky enough to meet Erica in person actually last year in San Francisco, where she introduced me to a super yummy smoothie spot. So that was definitely a good serendipitous meeting. And I wanted to talk to you about her and slash with her because she has a really interesting journey. She came up with the idea for Granola by accident when she was searching for a delicious yet healthy snack for post-Super Bowl cleanse she and her NFL hubby do each year. And she was stuck with a few options. So she created granola recipe using clean ingredients and superfoods. And it was such a hit that she created a side business out of it in 2013, selling granola out of her home at a local farmer market while working full time. She finally took the leap 4.5 years later. And today she supplies some of the largest tech companies like Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Microsoft, Slack, and so many more. And of course, she also sells her granola online at Granola and Amazon Prime. And it's actually those 4.5 years that I also want to focus on with Erica because, you know, as many of us, you know, say side hustle, but it's like, let's quit as soon as possible. And like this marathon versus sprint is super interesting to distill. So welcome, Erica, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I want actually to start with a little bit going way back. I know that you're actually a pretty professional swimmer back in college and that you actually even did Olympic trials twice. So I can't even imagine what Olympic trials are like. What does this look like? How is that feeling? How did you feel being there? I will just state that the first Olympic trials that I did, and this is the U.S. Olympic swimming trials, was in 2000. And this is going to age me, but I was 13 years old at that first trial. So I would say my, my peak in swimming was very overnight. And this was kind of overnight, sudden growth spurred, and I got really fast and I qualified. And I think having that naivety and not having such a plan with, you know, swimming becoming a sport that would give me a future or ticket into college made it a little bit easier. So of course, competing so young and getting on that stage so quickly was nerve wracking, but I think it made it easier because I was kind of young, dumb and having fun. So that was not too bad, not a lot of pressure. And then I also did the 2004 Olympic trials. And this is after I was finishing my senior year in high school, still pretty young, but, you know, having done it before and having had four years to kind of qualify and train for the next one, I almost think gives you a little bit more pressure. And looking back, I think that I actually did better at the 2000 trials, but I just feel so, uh, I don't know, grateful that I even had the opportunity to compete at that level. That's super interesting. And it also feels like a little bit, I hear some of your great NOLA story in there as well about, you know, the first time around being kind of for fun and serendipitous and then moving on to, I guess, having more pressure and a plan behind that. Oh, um, absolutely. So that's, that's actually quite an interesting question. You also then, when you were in college, quit swimming. Mm-hmm. But before I jump ahead in that sense, And I'm also assuming things here, so maybe you'll disprove me. But if you'd say like where you're today, which is very different than all those years ago, what kind of three rebel moves got you where you are now? Okay, so you are, I think, on track with where you were going. So I would say that the three rebel moves, two of them kind of repeated themselves and one of them is quite the opposite. I would say the first rebel move was deciding to quit swimming in college. So as I mentioned, I had a pretty linear path, you know, I 
when I was 13 years old, made it to the Olympic trials, swam in high school, knew I was going to go to a really great college. I ended up swimming at Stanford with a scholarship. And most people who get to that level usually never quit. And quitting was never something that was even in my vocabulary. And I learned pretty quickly after kind of going my first and second year in college, I just fell out of love with the sport and made a really difficult decision to quit my career. I had an injury. I just honestly just was not happy. And that rebel move ended up, I think, putting me in a position that allowed me to kind of first get my foot in the door in the tech industry. And that was amazing because I got this experience earlier in college than I would have out of college. And as you know, Great Nola, my product, my granola product that I'm doing full time now, my biggest channel is supplying these tech companies. So very easily, I could say that if I didn't quit swimming, I very easily could not have gotten my foot in the door in the tech industry, which would not have paid the path for me to, you know, when I do create my side hustle of starting my own granola business, I wouldn't have been able to to sell into that channel and thus almost like make a career and actually create a a meaningful business out of. So rebel move number one was deciding to quit the course. I think when most people, 99% of people would be like, you're crazy to quit. I would say the second rebel move is quite the opposite of that, which is staying the course. So I think when I launched Great Nola, so it was a side hustle, I was baking my granola out of my home kitchen and selling it at the local farmer's market to start. And within six months, I was actually able to get my granola voted into Google. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the way employee benefits are and the company cultures are in these big tech companies, Google pioneered this requirement where in order to compete and retain employee talent, you kind of have to have the best benefits. So one of those benefits is providing free snacks and beverages for employees for free. So I ended up getting voted into Google and Google started purchasing my granola in the tons per month and I had a full-time job. I think a lot of people who ever dream of having, you know, a small business or a side hustle, they would look at that as, oh my gosh, I got a huge first win. Let me go ahead and quit my job and let me make this work. Like this is huge momentum. Let's keep it going. Let's go all in. I ended up staying the course for nearly four plus years after that until I started to build more wins under my belt besides Google to finally actually hang in the towel on the job. So I think one of those things where it was quite the opposite with swimming, I was, I hung up the towel when most people wouldn't. With the business, I stayed in there where most people would have left long ago because I wasn't, I'm not talking about, oh, let's just wait a year after Google. So you're in it for a year and a half. I waited almost five years to hang up my tech career to go full-time on Great Nola. And looking back, the lesson there was, first of all, there's no right or wrong speed. Your journey is highly individualized with your risk tolerance, what you feel comfortable with, your financial situation, your mental confidence and whatnot. And it took me four and a half years to get there. For me, I also think that having had that patience during that journey got me to the point where I was able to build up a solid enough business model that I felt comfortable that, hey, this kind of has legs if I put more time at the top of the funnel. Whereas before, if I think I would have quit too soon, I think I honestly would have ran into more roadblocks and perhaps hung up the towel on Great Nola earlier than I would have. And hopefully I never have to do. And then I would say the third rebel move, I think this kind of goes against More of the values and my culture. So when I did decide I wanted to finally quit my tech career and do Great Nola full time, obviously I, you know, ran it by my parents and I'm not, you know, I wasn't necessarily raised to always do whatever my parents said. I was always very self-motivated and independent. But I remember, you know, my dad, he's traditional from Taiwan, you know, an immigrant. And I think a lot of immigrant parents who kind of work super hard to pave the way to allow their kids to grow up first generation in America. They don't necessarily want to see their kids take a huge risk because that's kind of what our generations prior have done for us. And so, you know, it's not like he had like a big uproar against me going full time, but I remember he just couldn't really understand why. And even though that I knew this was something that he didn't necessarily understand, it doesn't matter because it's your journey. And it's not about proving anyone wrong. It's about doing what you feel is your purpose. And I knew deep down, and I gave myself 
a solid four and a half years to kind of figure that this, this pull within me existed was to do great NOLA and was to kind of pursue this path. And so even though it kind of felt like it was against the grain from what I felt I was always raised to do, it just felt right. So you do it anyway. What I love about your story is so much of it is trusting what is right for you versus what maybe other people or the conventional way of doing things is. And that's exactly what I would love to unpack. So, and I think it's always a good connection when you said like, you know, what your parents and so on said about your last move, because I imagine the first one could have also been with some of those challenges. If you were a swimmer, like you were for so long, I would mm -hmm. think it becomes a very big part of your identity and also how you define yourself and who you are and mm -hmm. getting, you know, and, and being successful in it as well. Not just like, oh, you know, this is a hobby I very much enjoy and I like to do it, but also like, you know, this is, you know, gives me a scholarship. I'm taking this professional level and then having the confidence of saying like, but it's not the right thing for me anymore. How mm -hmm. did the people around you react to that? How did you come to that decision? Did you do it all alone? Was it through conversations? How did you get to that point where you're like, knew for yourself, this is the right thing and actually stuck with it rather than be convinced to maybe continue on or try it on a bit longer? So when I made the decision to stop swimming, I was 19 years old. And I would say looking back, and I know this is going back almost 14, 15 years. So it's easy to just remember the most important things and forget about any of the minutia and like the, every, the 360 that you were feeling at the time. But I think when I think back about that decision, the only people's opinion that I truly cared about were my parents. And luckily, you know, they were never the type that like forced or obligated me to do the sport. I was always very self-motivated. You know, there are a lot of parents who were at my teammates every single practice and were very heavily involved. My parents were fortunately very hands-off. Of course, I was a little nervous to uh, present the idea that, hey, I'm going to relinquish the scholarship. Of course, I had to get approval, but my parents were actually quite supportive. So they said not to worry about the scholarship. You've always been very self-motivated. The one thing that they were very nervous about was if I quit swimming, what's going to fill my time? Because I wasn't enjoying school already and I wasn't going to class. So they didn't want to see me quit and then suddenly like waste a huge opportunity to take advantage of the resources that I had at Stanford. But once I did get their blessing, I think very quickly, I realized there were so many things that I just didn't have the capacity to enjoy. So once I did quit swimming, I actually did start to go to class. It was never my intention, but suddenly I was less tired and I had less of a fog and I started to enjoy different parts of campus and college life that I just didn't have the energy for. Secondly, I was able to actually travel abroad. So a lot of people in college get to get this experience, but when you're swimming and it's a year-round sport, it's not an option. It just doesn't fit in with the swimming season and swimming schedule. But I actually got to study abroad and I studied abroad in Berlin and had an absolute blast. And that really unlocked my existing passion for world travel. So I really think that if I didn't you know, quit swimming and pursue that path, that there's no way I would have seen so much of the world that I've seen today. And then again, as I mentioned, it was, I was able to start getting my foot in the door in the tech industry. And that kind of has led me indirectly on the path that I am now. But I think with that, you know, there weren't too many people that I had to talk to besides my parents because I was so young. And all I knew was my unhappiness. And I'm still in school. I didn't have that many responsibilities. So therefore, it's a lot easier to make the decision when you're younger. That actually was an interesting point you made that it then led you to tech. And there I've also seen, and you've also said, it was also a very nonlinear path. So it wasn't like, I would say in quotation marks, you quit swimming, you find your tech, and then you were, you know, at a certain company for 50 years. You started off at Yahoo, which was a great first entryway. And then you did go to different startups and, you know, big ones and small ones and through different, you know, phases and, and stages there. and That is also especially used to not be the way at all to switch. It used to be like, okay, you start a company and you stay there for a long while. How did that experience impact you? Like, how did you think about it at the moment? Did you have to change your own thinking about what it means to switch? And how did you kind of redefine for yourself what like success in that traditional sense looks like? Sure. So when I um, landed my first job at Yahoo, and it was just an internship, that was accidental. I think it was just word of mouth. Someone saw an internship posting in some sort of 
college group posting and they thought of me and then I applied and I got that job. And then, oh, now suddenly my first experience is in tech. And then that was during my last or my junior and my senior year of college. So after college, that's when you really start to like think about, okay, what am I going to do? I remember the first time I started job searching for real. So this is after I graduated college. You know, naturally it just suddenly becomes, well, what's my existing experience and how can that lend that to future experience? All you want to do is to build experience upon experience upon experience because you have none. So I started in product management as an intern. So of course I looked for roles within product management in another tech company. And the next company I worked at, it was a very small startup. I stayed there for about a year. And something that I know about myself, and it's very common actually in Silicon Valley is, you know, I think you always want to learn in the moment you stop feeling challenged. And this is myself, you know, at the same time, there's some people who are very comfortable in a role that you're not constantly being pushed or growing. Some people are comfortable with the bigger companies and the nine to fives and you kind of just stay in your lane and that's perfectly fine. But having worked in a startup and knowing that every single role you're in is going to step function you as a professional because you're so young and you're going from zero to 10, 10 to a hundred, hundred to a thousand, you know, from your experience level. If I start to feel bored, that's when I start to look. But all of my 10 years in each job has been usually at least one year. And in Silicon Valley, I would say a lot of people often jump jobs. I would say every two years would be common. Like if you come from the Silicon Valley startup scene, staying somewhere for like four years is quite long. And I actually after that second startup that I worked for when I graduated college, I did end up working for another startup that ended up getting bought by Intuit, which are, they're the makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. They're a really huge company. I ended up staying with them for four years. And it was during that time that I started to moonlight my business. But I think the whole jumping around is pretty common in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area. People are just always constantly trying to learn and grow and get experience, or that may be the only way for you to get a certain salary that you want. But it didn't, it wasn't anything that was abnormal or felt like the pace was too much. Yeah, I see. I agree that it also depends on the, on the setting that you're in, whether it's uh, the normal, the not normal, so to say. So it, it was a good coincidence that uh, you were in that setting and it made sense for you. Mm-hmm. What I also was um, interested in, as I said, like, okay, so you're into it now. I'm going to fast forward to that part. And, you know, you, you've been doing granola at home and then you start to see that there's potential there. I'm wondering about your motivation in the beginning, because I know you said at the beginning of granola, you didn't have any huge aspirations of this mm-hmm. being your tech career exit or like this, you know, big company that you had planned it's going to be. But despite of that, it took a lot of time and commitment. I think when we talked, you told me that, you know, you were working, working a full-time job and then you'd have to prepare and hand make granola every night to then sell on the weekends. So that's quite a big commitment. How did those two things, like, how did that make sense for you in the sense that on the one side, you said like, okay, no, this is not, I'm not applying for this to be a huge thing. But on the other side, yes, I am investing a lot of time and energy into this. Where did your motivation come? When I was on Intuit, as I previously mentioned, it was actually a startup that got bought by Intuit. So the company that I worked for the first uh, one and a half to two years, it was straight startup mode. I was, it was so fun, exciting. I was learning every day. I felt like I made an impact even as like a junior entry-level employee doing marketing. And I think the moment that we got bought and what happens a lot in acquisitions, especially when you're acquired by a really big company, is the pace starts to slow. Like a company that was 100, 200 people is not going to operate at the same pace and velocity once there's already an exit. And then suddenly you're bought by, you know, a fortune 100 company. So what happened was I started number one, to get a little bit more white space and time. So I, you know, my schedule wasn't as rigorous. The learning started to slow a little bit. And with me, as I mentioned, the moment I start to get a little bit bored or unchallenged, I start looking. But in this case, I, instead of starting to look, I think the event that um, our startup got bought and there was an acquisition that started to make me think differently. So it made me start to think, oh, you know, maybe the path to success isn't jumping from job to job to job to job and you're climbing up the corporate ladder. But I'm seeing firsthandedly and experiencing from within that if you have a great idea that can bring value to others and a market, it could bring value to you too. And value might mean monetary value, like an acquisition, and it could be money. 
value to you could be freedom and flexibility and living your life on your terms, however you want to define it. But you can do that by creating value for others in a market through a business, right? So I started to think differently, number one. And then number two, with the extra time that I started to experience after the acquisition happened and the pace of work started to slow down, that's when I started thinking of what are the ideas that I wanted to solve? And, you know, I first thought within the framework of tech, really had no good ideas. To be honest, I haven't, you know, I wouldn't say that I was super passionate about the tech industry. It's just an industry that I fell into for work. The granola was just something that I was doing on the side on my own. So I was making this recipe all the time because there just weren't a lot of healthy granolas in stores. And every single year after the Super Bowl, which is a huge American football event, my husband and I do a cleanse where we basically eat very clean for 30 days. And I started making this granola because we just didn't have any healthy snack options that tasted good besides fruit. And so this granola was just a recipe I was making at home for my friends and my family and my husband. And then it wasn't until I um, had a random epiphany to launch that as my business idea that I actually started to do something. And I started very small. So I looked at it not as, oh my gosh, I have this amazing product. This is, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to see if it can be successful. And then I'm going to write a three-year plan and I'm going to like go full time. It was never that. It was purely a, hmm, I have a really yummy product that I'm making at home. I don't think there's anything, there's nothing like this in stores. Would other people like it as much as my friends and family do? Hmm, let's find out, right? And I decided to sell it at a local farmer's market to just test that hypothesis. But it wasn't anything where I had these ginormous dreams of turning it into like a business and this huge brand. And it was just, it took me four years to kind of foster and nurture that. So I think the impetus for starting a business came from my former career, but then the idea and the product and what I decided to do was highly accidental and serendipitous. And then the journey to get from, oh, this is a fun little idea. What if to where I am now, where I'm fully pursuing it, it was the combination of being patient. It was a combination of hard work. It was a combination of just making opportunities, but over a very, very long time period. And that was another interesting part because as you mentioned, Google became one of your first big clients. That's when you went from having to produce at home to you know, going up a much, much larger scale. I think the numbers were you were doing 20 pounds at home and then you had to supply 1,400 pounds to Google within six months. So that was a big jump. This is, you know, the that was a great achievement and I'm sure you felt awesome about it. And a lot of people, as you said, would have had the reaction of great. I've got a big client. This means this works. I'm going to jump in and do this full time. Mm -hmm. And you made the choice of not doing that. And I think that was a, not only, which I found interesting, not only did you do the choice not to do that, but you actually even switched jobs to another company and started HoneyBooks, if I'm not wrong. So yes. How did that decision process, how was it for you to say, you know, I'm making strides here and being successful, but I don't want to do this full time yet? It's really funny. And I think that I'm not the type, like even when I used to swim, I would never go in and be like, yeah, I'm going to win this race. Yeah, I'm going to kick ass. I always have this weird part of me. It's like, you know, you have your devil and your angel on your shoulder. And like part of me is just like, yes, I, I'm going to do well. I really want to do well. And then you have the other side. It's like, just, you know be cool, be relaxed. What if this happens? You never know, you know, and you're always like playing that game with yourself. And I've always been like that in my professional career too. So when it came to Great Nola and I got my first big win, it was, if not more scary than it was exciting. First of all, you barely have time to think because you're just like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? So you're just like in survival mode to just figure things out. And then once you have things going, then another part of me started to kick in, which was like, okay, this is great, but here comes the double side of, you know, the person on my shoulder who's like, if Google, it leaves me, I have no business, you know? So it's like, this is awesome. But if they pulled out, I have nothing. And so I was constantly in this phase of, well, it's not really a business if it's just one customer. And so there was no part of me that felt like, oh my God, I've got it. And this is, you know, I should quit because of this. Whereas other people might be like, oh my God, let's take advantage of the opportunity we have in the hand. We have volume. Let's start to scale this. Let's get other people as quickly as possible. I was like, nope, 
this could be gone any moment. Like I'm going to build up backup for as long as it will need to take. And it was during that time I ended up accidentally getting connected to this other startup, HoneyBook. And I got a job offer. I wasn't even looking, by the way, but somehow I just got really attracted to the opportunity, what we were doing with the founders. And I ended up taking that job, thinking that I could balance both. And honestly, that was also a very naive, I think, a naive assumption that I could balance working for a startup that I was the 15th employee at and balance basically a barely surviving startup. And by barely surviving, I mean, you know, the startup, if you were to compare it to a human is literally like three months old, you're still breastfeeding. It can't do anything without you, right? It can't run on its own because you just literally have one customer, but it's a huge customer. And looking back, I think I went in believing that I could do both and it was very hard. So what ended up happening was for the first like year and a half, once I switched jobs, all I did was like keep great and all low float and I fulfilled my orders with Google and that was pretty much it. But then HoneyBook started to take all my mind share and it started to like tap into a lot of my passion that I had for Great Nola. So Great Nola was kind of just on autopilot for the next year and a half after Google, where all I did was supply orders, but I didn't do much to really build the business or the brand. And HoneyBook is where I put all my energy, my startup energy towards. And when I look back where I am now, I also think that was another blessing in disguise because I was able to soak up and learn and get so much experience at HoneyBook that I think made me such a better founder than I am today had I decided to instead opt out of that experience and either stay at Intuit longer while doing the business and not get as much learning or having jumped full-time earlier. It allowed me to also endure, I'd say, even though I wasn't spending so much focused time on building great NOLA, but I did get a lot of no's in the beginning. So even though I had Google, it didn't necessarily mean I could get Twitter and Dropbox and Uber like the day after. It took a long, long time to nurture that. So HoneyBook also kept me patient while I you know, was getting experience as well as kind of figuring out how to break into the corporate channel more for great NOLA. What I really like about how you approach both of these things is that it was very much about mindset and how you also now think about it. It's not, I don't think I've ever heard you say, talking to me or anybody else, like that you regret not leaving earlier or that, you know, what could have happened if you'd done that. It's always very much about the great learnings that that gave you and the time that it gave you and the opportunities that came out of that. And that's what I'd like to ask you, since there's a lot of people who do do side hustles. I actually think in the US, it's something like 40%. Mm-hmm. How do you do that time well? Because as you said, especially when you're starting a new job that you're passionate about and you're interested in, it's not necessarily that you're like, hit your day job and then go to work at night on something you love. I think I've talked about this before that it's, you can't hate something during the day and then love something at night, regardless of what it is, like that switch in mindset and emotion is not possible. So mm-hmm. how do you approach both of them, I guess, positively? And how do you manage to bridge that time (laughs) while still being effective in both? Yeah. So in some ways, I think that they can make you better in both. So what happens is your bandwidth becomes very thin. So again, I, it wasn't like HoneyBook was a nine to five. It was more like a seven to seven, to be honest. And I had a crazy commute. So what happens is that you have limited time for your business and thus it makes you highly productive in everything that you're doing. So if you have finite time, you hopefully, if you're, if you're smart, you're working on the most important things, the highest priorities in your business. Whereas I think often if you had unlimited runway, let's just say I would have gone full time and done great NOLA earlier and I had no job in the way. Sometimes you don't even know where to start or you end up procrastinating. And I've actually had moments as I've been full time in the business now for a year and a half where it's not like there's no urgency. There's tons of urgency. But sometimes when you're just limited, when you're time constrained, you're just a little bit less productive, or you might start focusing on things that don't really matter as much because you know you have the whole day to get everything done. So when you're balancing both, for me, I feel like I'm at my highest productivity because you have no choice. It's just literally, it's just the way like physically you're just constrained on time. Secondly, I think having the side hustle, it does the same thing for your job because you know, assuming the side hustle is what you ultimately want to do, you're going to probably inadvertently 
want to get everything done you, that you can't possibly can for your full-time job so that you have more time to create, you know, space and, and dedication to your side hustle. So it plays into both. You know, when I was in a swimmer in high school, I had an insane schedule. I had no free time and I was very highly productive. And I remember the year that I had a boyfriend and suddenly I have to dedicate time to this other arena in my life. My grades never suffered because what ended up happening was, oh, instead of taking a lunch break and being social, I just went to the library and did my homework. So it just makes you a highly efficient individual. At least it, it did for me. And then second, I think if you are transparent about your side hustle with your existing employer, and I think you almost have like this, a heightened sense of obligation to try to do your job even better so that people are never doubting, hey, what are you, know, are you really here? Are you checked out? Are you checked in? So again, I think that it can be seen as a positive thing and it could actually make you better at both of both your job and your side hustle. Did you know that email is still queen? Yes, I did that on purpose. But kidding aside, email is still the best medium to reach your audience. It gets more clicks and opens and engagements than social media, though I love me some Instagram. It still is the best medium to connect with your people. So if you want to focus on telling your story and connecting with your audience, then I've got a great offer for you. ConvertKit is an email marketing software for creators that lets you focus on personal connection and not all the tech behind that. So they will have awesome automations where you can create personal touch points at different points of somebody's journey. If you, for example, sign up for the Leading Rebels newsletter, you will have seen a little sequence of emails go out. That's all thanks to ConvertKit. And through my link, which you can access at leadingrebels.com slash ConvertKit, you will have the chance to take a free trial. So you can just test it out, see if it works, and I'm sure you'll fall in love like I did. Again, that's leadingrebels.com slash convertkit. Convertkit is spelled C-O-N-V-E-R-T-K-I-T. That was actually something interesting you just mentioned because it's also something I've seen about your relationship with your ex-employers. I think I see that Intuit has supported you <laughs> recently and I think there was even a conference and all these different things. How do you communicate openly with an employer about your side hustles slash how do you stay in a good relationship even if you do decide to go and, and go after your own thing? Yeah. So for me, I don't like to feel like I'm hiding or like trying to get away with stuff. And so I think the more transparent you can be given the comfort level you have with your boss or your employer, I think you should try to, to maximize that. So the good thing, at least with HoneyBook, was when I interviewed, they knew I had the business. But as you know, in the beginning, I totally shifted gears and really focused on HoneyBook and kind of just kept Great Nola on autopilot. So when I started to kind of pick up the pace again on Great Nola and like start thinking, when I started to think, oh, you know, maybe this is, this is my future. I had already put in two years of just grit. Like I was fully drinking the Kool-Aid. I was one of the first people there, always the last people leaving. I didn't even like come home for dinners anymore at that point. So it's like, in a way, I was already proven. But then afterwards, when I think I started realizing, oh, hey, like Great Nola is actually going to be my future. I actually communicated that very early on with my the CEO of my company, where I told him a year out, hey, it's my goal to actually pursue this full time. And I was very lucky. I know not everyone is like this, but we, you know, HoneyBook supports the entrepreneurial economy. It's what they actually serve uh, industry-wise. And he told me, he was like, look, Erica, if you quit to do anything other than Great Nola, I would actually be very disappointed in you. And so I kind of got that blessing way far in advance. And I think that helped versus having to tiptoe around when you're like right around the corner from that moment of taking the leap. I, I think just more communication, the better. And then I also, you know, obviously you want to communicate it with your direct manager and your teammates, and you should just try to be very respectful or just be really good at not showing like, hey, you're just burning like work time to do your business. And as long as you show up and you're, you're doing your job and you're doing your job well, hopefully your employer won't care because people shouldn't be worried about the hours necessarily or the face time. They should be worried about the results and the impact you make. Yeah, absolutely agree that one, transparency is key and two, that you know, if you show that you are still contributing and that the work you do is good, that obviously carries a lot of weight. 
Mm-hmm. And shifting a little bit to what you said. So prioritization is super important and being effective. I agree when you're, you know, have more things to juggle often, you're more effective than not. But it can also sometimes be a little bit too much. It can be a little bit overwhelming when you do end up having to do so many things. And also sometimes when you even then switch to doing something full time and then you want to do all the things, basically. How do you also balance kind of being okay, learning how to take a step back and not let it overwhelm you? It's hard. And I feel like what I often need. So as an entrepreneur now full time and now suddenly the runway and like the goal line seems infinitely away. And there's so many things that you want to do and you just don't have enough time. You don't have the resources or you just don't have the the know-how even because you're doing everything. I think that for me, I get caught up a lot in the day-to-day operations. I get caught up in the execution or trying to get sales and deals for tomorrow or this month, but I'm not very good at doing the strategic planning and vision. So I recognize this as a weakness of mine. And I realize that the way I do fill that in is by having conversations with other people. So this could be other people in the space. It could be other food founders that are way further along than me. It could be talking to my husband. But I recognize and know that, look, I have a gap when it comes to like more long-term planning and vision and strategy. And I've realized over the years that what helps me with this the most is by talking to other people and networking. So for me, and this is highly individual, like a lot of people could be the complete opposite where you're very good at the long-term planning, but you're not good at the day-to-day execution. But I think recognizing where you're weak at, knowing how to fill those gaps. So whether that's, you need to read a book, you need to go on a hike, you need to go talk to five other people and get their thoughts on it, whatever it is, fill that gap with wherever you get your energy and inspiration from And then I think the next very important thing is to kind of frame what you're doing in some sort of goal setting framework. So you can have these conversations all day long, but you need to put your goals on paper and actually say, okay, you're out. These are my goals. I want to have this revenue. I have this many customers. I want to be in these states or whatnot. And then hopefully that will help provide some structure around all right, well, the things that I'm doing day to day or the things that I'm doing month over month, are they fitting under these goals? And have checkpoints. So every month or every quarter, check against the progress against those goals. And if you find that you're kind of spending a lot of time that don't roll up into those priorities, then something needs to change. But I think number one is figuring out where do you draw your inspiration from or what are you weak at where you need help to fill in those gaps? And then Once you set some goals and priorities, make sure you have some checkpoints to audit if you are actually, in fact, putting energy towards those goals or if you're deviating and spending time on things that don't roll up to the things that matter. You also just touched on one thing that I think is super important is the fact of uh, having people (laughs) and having a network. And in your story, you know, if I don't have it wrong, a friend of yours who worked at Google actually made that first introduction. And I think you've mentioned a couple of times how network has been integral to your success in your day-to-day. How did that come about? How did you always find that that was something you needed? And I think for, for more of the practical side, how did you actually start building those connections? Sure. Networking was not something that I really did in my former tech career. I think that, number one, I learned that I just was never super passionate in any of the roles I don't want to say that I wasn't super passionate. I was always super passionate in the role. Like I like to build and I like to make an impact and I like to be part of a team. Don't get me wrong. And I was absolutely passionate about HoneyBook, absolutely passionate about Intuit, especially when we were building a company that got bought by Intuit. But I never, for whatever reason, felt the need to network. And I think it's just different when you're doing your own business, especially in a new industry. So when I decided to start a food company, I had no experience in food. I've never been an entrepreneur. I've never started a company. In the beginning, you just don't know what you're doing. So you almost have to network and talk to other people who have been there and done that in order to simply survive. So it's very hard to say, hey, I'm going to start a company in a vacuum because when you say you're going to start a company and you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have a million questions and you can't necessarily Google all of them. You can't answer the questions always by yourself. And I found that networking was the first way to just get answers to the most basic questions around starting a food business or selling at the farmer's market or finding a manufacturer once I got a Google business. And 
slowly over time, as I started to network more, I realized that networking doesn't just lead to support or knowledge when you have a burning question, but it also will lead to unexpected opportunities. The Google opportunity, it wasn't like, I was like, hey guys, like, does anyone have a business account for me? Please hit me up. It was literally, I was sharing, hey guys, I started my granola company. This is the name. I'm selling it at the farmer's market. Just like a little of an announcement. And then the Google friend, she was the one that pinged me and was like, hey, Erica, like I work for Google. Maybe I can connect you to the food team. And that's what created that opportunity. I wasn't even looking for it. I didn't even think to even sell my granola at tech companies. And that just happened randomly. And I think very early on, it conditioned me to realize, you know, it's only going to do you a disservice if you're not sharing what you're doing because other people might have friends they can connect you to that are also in the food space who you can kind of buddy up with and help support. Or they're like, oh, Erica, I work at Microsoft. Let me just connect you to the food person here. Like you just never know what can come from it. And so many opportunities come from networking. I think it's been the lifeblood of my business, but of course it starts with a great product. And going one step further in the networking, I also love that um, I had a feeling, but I wasn't sure that it was a female friend who connected you. You've also, we, we actually share a slogan that we both love, uh, the Empowered Woman, Empowered Woman. Actually, mm-hmm. I was sure of it. Last year, I didn't have it, otherwise I would have got you one as well. And you also self-identify as a girl boss. And I know you, this is something you also ask a lot of the, the great women that you've had on the granola block. What is the connection that you've had with women? And what is this feeling that you have of bonding together in that sense? And what does that mean to you to be a girl boss in that sense? Sure. So for me, I think my inspiration for kind of doing my own thing. Yeah, I think it comes from the fact that I'm, I would say I'm a pretty ambitious person. I never like to be bored. I constantly like to be learning. But I also come from a culture and a family where, you know, I would say women tend to be kind of the ones tending the home and the men work. And I think at an early age, it was around the time that I quit swimming, my parents divorced and I realized, look, I never want to be caught in a situation where I can't like financially support myself if say the worst scenario happened and I'm on my own, you know, that could, that could happen. You never know. And that was the first motivation for me to want to just be financially sound. And in the beginning, it just, you know, my means to that was my career. And then eventually I got, had some turning points in, in my corporate journey where suddenly I started thinking, Oh, about outside of just pursuing a career path with, by working for other people, maybe I could work for myself. But I'm all about, number one, living to your values. So what do you value? Do you value freedom? Do you value flexibility and having time with your family? Do you value money? Like whatever it is, live to your values and make sure that you're putting, you know, when you have your hundred penny test, how many pennies are going towards the things that matter to you, right? Because you could see people doing stuff that they don't love and it provides some means to an end, but at the end of the day, they're not happy. Like, That's, to me, that's a conflict of values when you're not spending time in the areas that really matter to you fundamentally for you to just feel fulfilled as a human being. And then number two, I think it's like owning your own outcome, which is, yes, you're living to your values, but you're also doing what you want to get there, right? And so if you love working for startups and other corporations and you love your job and this is what makes you happy because it gives you the time and the flexibility and the benefits to like have the balance you want in your life and spend time with your family and friends, by all means, do it. If it's, nope, you don't want to have to have a boss, you want to build something, you know, do it. But I think you want to just own that outcome. And then with the female entrepreneur thing, one of the amazing outcomes of just having shifted from tech to food is that I have had the pleasure of meeting so many other founders who I would say are mostly women. And I think women tend to be a little bit more nurturing and helpful and caring than men. I'm talking very high level stereotypes. So men don't get offended out there, but everyone has just been so supportive and people care to hear about your journey and people care to, to want to help you out. And the men too are like that as well. I think the natural foods industry is just a pleasant one, but I feel like I've been very fortunate to work in an industry or maybe I'm, inadvertently self-selecting to connect with other women. It could be something subconscious, but luckily there's a lot of other kind of females out there who are starting their own food companies. And there's almost a collective or a community of just mutual support. And even other granola brands, we're very friendly with each other. 
there's plenty of space for everyone. And it's just felt very supportive. And even though I'm on this journey alone and I'm a sole founder and I'm an entrepreneur and I don't have teammates that sit in an office with me, ironically, the journey has not been lonely at all because I'm constantly connected with other founders. And I think it'll definitely inspire more women and men, of course, to kind of go after their own thing after a conversation or to start that side hustle or to grow it. And in that sense, is there a resource that you would definitely recommend to inspire listeners to kind of do their own thing? Is there a book, a podcast, something that you say was also very integral in giving you kind of maybe the confidence or the boost to do things on your own terms? Sure. So I would say that my experience was probably the most impactful in kind of finding my motivation to do my own thing. So again, working at a company that got acquired, seeing those founders kind of create the life that they wanted, and then also successfully bring an amazing product to customers as well. But I remember as I was trying to figure out when I wanted to go full-time or how to run my business or how to be creative and solve problems, there are two podcasts that I really enjoyed listening to. Number one is How I Built This. And then number two was The Accidental Creative. And Both are very different. So how I built this, obviously, it case studies the journeys of some entrepreneurs that you most likely have heard of. So it could be the founder of Airbnb or the founder of Blow Dry Bar or the founder of Uber. And then you just hear their journey. And it's just amazing to just kind of understand the individual path that people take to get to where they are because it's very different. Everyone can have completely different paths, but kind of achieve the same goal of, hey, I just want to fulfill my passion. I have this drive to do something and I did it, but it wasn't easy. And these were all the different roadblocks that I faced and this is how I solved them. And then the accidental creative is a great podcast um, where it gives you a little bit more about tools and processes and frameworks for just being an entrepreneur, being creative, professional, and just kind of how to navigate the path of constantly feeling like you're living to your creativity, always putting out the best work for whatever it is that you do. I love that. And I also love those podcasts. So I definitely agree with you on those. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. So to finish us off after a really awesome overview of the different steps that brought you to where today from, you know, quitting swimming to starting Great Nola to taking the step to go from side hustle to full time. How did your life change when you started doing things on your own terms? whether this was when you were younger or now or recently, how have you noticed that once you kind of start owning what is right for you by saying, you know, there might be a prescribed path here, but what is right for me is different. How has that impacted how you live day to day? I think it's just a feeling of fulfillment. So I don't even want to say a feeling of happiness because there's just going to be times when you're not happy or you're struggling. And I would say that I am an overall very happy person, but I think it's very easy to get caught up thinking that like, oh, you're doing well because you're happy. Because you're not always going to want and be super overjoyed to do the necessary tasks at hand. But I think it's more a feeling of fulfillment and purpose where when you are waking up and you want to do these things, even if these things are hard, but you want to do it, like your drive is to do it. That's the difference. So I remember towards the end of when I was balancing my full-time career in Great NOLA, you know, obviously I'd have to wake up and go to work. And I remember getting out of bed was tough. It was, oh my gosh, I don't want to get out of bed and go drive all the way to work for an hour and a half, work and then come back. And then only then I can do my business. I would want to sleep in for as long as I could because it would almost kind of like push that off. But the very first day that I went full-time on my business, I was like so excited to get out of bed. And I know like, I don't want to fool people to think like, you're going to get up excited every day. But you're going to, suddenly there's a shift of, I am going to get up and I have something I really need to do today. And I want to do it because it's important to me. I think that's a huge shift. And not every day is a good thing. Like you might be like, oh my God, I have to get up in the morning because I need to go to my plant and tend to my manufacturer and solve this problem. That may not be something that brings you happiness, but you absolutely feel like you need to do it because it's important to you. There's just that, there's a shift of just like what you're, like there's just this draw towards what you're doing is, is very important. So it's like, you know, I don't have a kid. I'm sure many people on the podcast do. You're going to have those shitty times, right? 
but you want to do it because you need to, and it's, you, you have to. And at the end of the day, you look back and you wouldn't change anything for the world. It's hard. Swimming, same thing, right? It's, it's hard. You don't, you don't want to wake up at 5 a.m. to jump in the pool, but you know this is the means to the ends that you want to achieve. As long as you feel like what you're doing day in and day out, and especially when it comes to the hard points, that this is necessary and you want to do it because it's important, then I think you're in a good place. But the moment you're in a spot where it's like, why am I doing this? This is pointless. I hate this. I don't want to do this. And you almost feel like someone else is making you or a different part of your body is making you. That's the moment where I think, you know, you should kind of evaluate, are you living to your values? And I felt that fundamental shift once I was able to kind of like make these decisions around, hey, look, I'm not feeling satisfied or hey, I don't feel fulfilled by what I'm spending most of my time doing, but it's not really necessarily making me feel like I'm living purposefully. I love that we said about kind of having that motivation that drives you to go. I have that. I have a little bit more, you know, freedom to schedule my time as I do. But as everybody does, we always have tasks and things we have to do and not necessarily love doing. And a big shift that I've also seen is I actually have things for, you know, the podcast or some other passion project that I'm working on. And I dangle that as a reward. So I'll be like, okay, you have to focus these two hours and get this one thing done that you have to do. And then afterwards, you get to work on the, in quotation marks for me, fun stuff, even though that technique uh-huh. is more work, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. So right. I completely agree with you there that that, uh, that definitely helps to have that drive to, to go and keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Erica. It's been an amazing conversation. Listeners, I will definitely have all the links below on the resources that Erica mentioned. And of course, you should go check out greatnola.com and hopefully get a taste of the amazing product Erica has created. She had a special edition of charcoal. I just mentioned it earlier. That I was very upset that I couldn't get, but you should hopefully check it out and have a taste of the amazing sack. Thanks so much, Erica, for the amazing conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you guys got something out of this and good luck on all of your journeys. The leading rebels interviewed on the podcast have dropped some serious wisdom. So who wouldn't want to be motivated by them every day? Am I right? That's why I created extra special free resources just for you. From motivational wallpapers featuring inspiring quotes rebel women have shared to a leadership master cheat sheet, head to leadingrebels.com resources to get your hands on them all.